Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who is a daredevil just like his father. Here is the captain. Yes, a man who taught me that trying to jump over 10 monster trucks was just one too many. God rest his soul. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very happy to be featuring Green Slush by our good friends over at Wiley Roots Brewing Company. I am not one who is much for the sours, but boy, I got to tell you, this is a must try. And look, we still have some summer left. So if you want something delicious, cold and refreshing, well, this is it. This baby's got it all. And if you like watermelon, well, you're going to love Green Slush. Garage grade four bottle caps out of five. And a big cheers goes out to our friends right here. First up, a cheers to Shea in Framingham, Massachusetts. And a big shout out to Taryn in Spokane, Washington. Next, a local cheers to Joe in Marion, Ohio. A quick cheers to my buddy Joe that tries to write captain intros and is awful at it. Cheers to you, mate. And a big We Like Your Jib to Kelly in Philadelphia. And here's a cheers to Nigel over in Ireland. And last but certainly not least, we have Ms. Pamela in Melbourne, Australia. Everyone we just mentioned, well, they went to truecrimegarage.com and helped us out with this week's beer fund. And for that, we are grateful. Yeah, and for that, we like them just a little bit more than we like you. So thanks for the B-W-E-R-U-N beer run. For more True Crime Garage, check out our premium show off the record on Stitcher Premium. You can go to truecrimegarage.com to sign up and get a month for free. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Today's date is July 14th, 1999. Wednesday, it's 1309 hours. 
My name is Detective Bud Sampson. We're in the Ravenna Police Department interview room. Along with me is Detective William Mucklow and Detective John Leach of the Alliance Police Department. Also in the room is Joseph Isaac Wilkes. April 1st, 1999, Alliance, Ohio. Alliance is in the northeastern part of the great state of Ohio, north of Canton and east of Akron. And back in 1999, there were about 23,000 people living in Alliance, which is in Stark County. One of those people was 26-year-old Yvonne Lane. She was found murdered in her home. Now, homicide is not a normal thing in Alliance. Back then, we typically see about one homicide a year, sometimes none. Yvonne Lane was a mother. She was not living alone. She was found by her mother. Yvonne's mother, Tanya Lane, went to the home of her daughter and found a shocking scene on that April 1st. Tanya found Yvonne dead, with her throat cut, and she was lying in a pool of her own blood. Her five young children were in the house, but were unharmed. There was a lack of forensic evidence, but there were two partial bloody footprints found at the scene. David Thorne, Yvonne's ex-boyfriend, and the father of one of her children, was instantly a suspect. David was eventually tried, convicted, and sentenced to life without parole for the murder of Yvonne. The police got their best lead when a woman named Rose Marr contacted them to say that she and her boyfriend, Chris Campbell, spoke with a young man named Joseph Wilkes. And incredibly, Joseph told them he was in town because he had been hired to kill a woman. Eventually, Joseph Wilkes admitted to having killed Yvonne, and he claimed that David Thorne, Yvonne's ex-boyfriend, hired him to do so. He also gave the cops a detailed account of how the pair had planned the murder. This confession sent David Thorne to prison for the rest of his life. Joseph Wilkes is in prison as well. He is serving 30 years to life. David Thorne has continuously claimed he is innocent, and he had a strong alibi for the time of the murder. His family and a number of organizations are currently conducting a campaign to have his conviction overturned, because they believe the investigation may have been botched or even worse, covered up. Those who believe in David Thorne's innocence suspect that the police botched the case but were determined to get a result, so they concocted a murder-for-hire plot and forced a confession. This is True Crime Garage, and this is the case of Yvonne Lane.
Joining us in the garage today, we have Maggie Freeling. Some of you may know her from the disappearance of Mara Murray documentary series that was on Oxygen a couple of years ago. And I believe right now the people, they want to watch it. It is currently streaming on Peacock. Maggie is also the host of the Unjust and Unsolved podcast, and she is conducting an in-depth investigation into the murder of 26-year-old Yvonne Lane, a case that some say is unsolved because they have convicted the wrong man in this case. Hello, Maggie. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of this case and your investigation all of these years later, how are you doing and how did you find this case. Awesome. It is so great to be back with you guys. I'm doing all right. Recovering from COVID actually. So my voice is kind of gone. You know, I found this case very long time ago, I guess at this point, working on it for a year, maybe almost like two years ago, I found this case. I was in touch with David. I don't remember exactly if I came to sue his wife or if she came to me But it was brought to my attention as, you know, this case, 22 years, this guy who a lot of people say has been wrongfully convicted for all that time and hasn't had anybody. Um, When I first talked to David, he told me his case was dead in the water. And he was right. It was. He used up all of his appeals. And it's an incredibly complicated case, as we'll get into. So it was really difficult to find people who were willing to take it on pro bono. And so I decided to look at it. I did an episode for Unjust and Unsolved. And afterwards, I was just like, I couldn't stop thinking about it because there's so much here. Um, it kind of drove me a little crazy. And I just said, you know what? I, I need to do an entire series on this. David Thorne is one of the men that have been convicted in this case. And he was an ex-boyfriend and the father to one of Yvonne's children. And he's been locked up for over 20 years in this case. Now, this is an Ohio case, so Alliance, Ohio. And it was a case that actually received, I was a little surprised, it received more media attention than I had speculated on going into it. But And there was a book written on the case as well. I couldn't find the the title of the book. Do you recall the author? Yeah, so the book, if we're thinking about the same one, it wasn't on the case. It was Brent Turvey. He's a forensic expert. He looked into the case, and he actually has two books. One is on what not to do at a crime scene, where he features this case and another one very similar. So they're actually in two forensic textbooks. Now, if you could go ahead and tell us a little bit about our victim here, Yvonne Lane. She's a mother of five children. Is that correct? Five kids, 26 years old. The oldest kid at the time was 10. She had her first kid when she was 16. She was a Jehovah's witness from, you know, what family has said and and friends have said at the time, she was trying to get back on track, trying to become a devout Jehovah again. But she also had five little kids and had to make ends meet. And, you know, what we know, she wasn't really working. She was on welfare and she was kind of struggling to take care of all the kids. One of the children's fathers, there's different dads, he, his parents were taking care of one of the kids who was disabled. The oldest kid lived with his grandparents. So she was taking care of three of the kids on her own. So three of the children living with her at the time of the murder. Yes. And actually there was the fourth child with her at the time because she was trying to get custody back of him. Uh, Vinny, the disabled boy who actually becomes kind of a big part of the story um, as he was there when the murder took place. He was in the home as well. Brandon, Preston, Vinny, and Trenton were all home. And David Thorne, one of the men that have been convicted in this case, 
of her murder. He knew her from high school and then they reconnected years after high school. Is that correct? Yeah. So they met at a vocational school. She wanted to go to school for cosmetology and he was going for decal making. David's really big into cars. So they wound up at the same vocational school, either junior, senior year of high school. And saw each other in the hall. They obviously didn't have classes together. They were taking different classes, but he saw her in the hall and was really struck by her. Everything we've heard is that she's absolutely stunning, like this knockout babe. I guess a couple years later, he they were at a car parts shop. She needed to fix her car and bumped into him. And he was like, oh, I'll fix your car for you. And that's kind of how it how it started. And David is the father of Brandon. So where does Brandon fall in the order of children? And from my understanding, he finds out about having a son with Yvonne after Brandon is already brought into this world. Yeah, so it's really complicated as we get into later in the season, the children and and her pregnancies. Um, but Brandon is the second youngest. Her and David were together somewhere around about a year they broke up. She, because the father of a couple of the other kids, none of them are confirmed. The only confirmation we have is Brandon from a DNA test with David. But so the alleged father of a couple of the other kids, her and him were on and off for about 10 years. So they had a very complicated and from what we understand, actually abusive relationship. So her and David broke up because of him. You know, he's the father of a bunch of the kids. There was just, he was always going to be in her life. Things are tumultuous and her and David kind of went separate ways. She calls him, you know, a couple months later, maybe, you know, nine months later saying, I had a baby. I think it's yours. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how that happened. David was dating another girl at the time who was kind of like, what the hell? Your ex-girlfriend's calling you and you now have a kid. And things got pretty complicated for the two of them. From what we know, they were trying to maybe get back together David says that they were talking about that. We have heard from other family members that, you know, there were talks of engagement rings. So David and Yvonne were carrying on a behind the scenes relationship while they were both seeing other people after Brandon was born and they found out, you know, they had a kid together. So it all gets really complicated. Well, and I love the way that you describe it in your series, Murder and Alliance, because I think it really sums it up very nicely in a nice and neat package where you say Eric, the mm -hmm. other guy who fathered multiple of the children, as far as we know, mm -hmm. that's always been the, the belief or understanding. He's the bad guy. He's, he's somebody that she just can't seem to quit mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Maybe it is because they've had such a long relationship or they had so many children together he's always going to be around mm -hmm. and david and her just didn't work out mainly because of this other guy because of eric mm -hmm. always being there and you said that you know david seemed to be kind of the the more stable individual that she would kind of turn to when things weren't going right with eric or when she had had enough of this eric guy yeah i mean that's kind of what it seems like to me i mean her and eric from what we know i mean they would beat the crap out of each other, like really physically abusive. I talked to her son, Preston, in the interview. Eric's allegedly uh, in the podcast. Eric is allegedly his father. He thinks Eric's his father. And then he says, yeah, they were pretty, pretty freaking violent to each other. So, you know, and David, every account we know is this kind man who would take her back. He loved her and take care of her during those uh, off times with Eric. And, you know, we bring up, the fact that we don't know who the dad 
we don't, you know, for certain know who the dads are of the other four children, not in any way to, you know, shame her or anything, but it does get complicated when you're talking about who could have done this. There are many, (laughs) multiple men out there who could have fathered her children, who, you know, we've heard rumor that she had been pregnant with their children. So there was a lot of people that needed to be looked into, not just David and Eric. Once David finds out that he is in fact the father what is his behavior like? It it seems to me like he was willing to to step up to the plate and be as much of a father, be involved in Brandon's life as much as possible. From every account we have heard, even at trial, from the social worker who was dealing with the custody and child support payments, they had an amicable relationship. Amicable. There was no um, fighting over Brandon. There was no custody argument. It was basically, you know, you're going to pay child support. Okay, you've got to go to court and figure out how much, legally get into an agreement for that. And what we've heard from all of those people is fine. Great. David was happy to pay child support. David wasn't trying to get custody of Brandon. From what we know, everything was fine. And very sadly, Yvonne, only 26 years old, she's killed inside her home at her residence sometime before April 1st, 1999. And so all these years later, we're talking over 21 years later, what is the relationship between David and Brandon today? I mean, this is a, a, this kid, very sadly, his mother is killed when he's young. I'm, I'm uncertain of his age at the time of the murder, but then to double down on that tragedy, his father is put away for life in prison. Yeah. Brandon was two at the time. So he doesn't really remember much at all about the murder or his his mother. But, you know, their relationship is, it's strange. You know, Brandon visited David all the time when he was a kid. You know, people would bring him. But as the years go on, he becomes a teenager. I mean, he li- lives his own life. I mean, they talk. He believes in his dad's innocence. He, of course, wants his dad out. But other than that, I mean, he's just a 20-something kid living his life and He's, you know, that's kind of it. It's, it's definitely sad. I mean, prison, these things really break up families. Investigators came up with a rough time frame of when they believe the murder went down and when it took place mm-hmm. in Yvonne Lane's residence that night, sometime on March 31st, 1999. And we have David Thorne, who has been in prison all these years, yet he was three counties away with a solid ironclad alibi for his time that night. Take us through the timeline of the how we get from this guy not being able to be a suspect because he has an ironclad alibi to now he's in prison. Yeah. I mean, and that's uh, that's it's complicated. I mean, we've put together a timeline, but we're still, you know, it's it's confusing. So The time of death for Yvonne is sometime, this is the coroner's report, sometime after 7 p.m. March 31st. So there is an actual 14-hour window that she could have died. Her body was discovered around 12, 1230, April Fool's Day. She died sometime around 7 p.m. the night before. They couldn't really say other than that. So, you know, from there, David was looked at right away. He's the father of one of the kids. They're recently in court for custody. 
And he's smart. His grandfather's smart and instantly got him a lawyer. The lawyer came and that was that was it. David never talked to the police again. So the police were always very suspicious because David got a lawyer and didn't want to talk to the police, which, you know, if you listen to my podcast or any of the cases that you guys have covered about potential wrongful convictions, I mean, that's a pretty smart thing to do to get a lawyer and not talk to the police because who knows what'll happen. So they took that as he's guilty, he won't cooperate with us. So they were always on him since then, trying to figure out, you know, how he did this. There were a couple friends in their friend group that the police had brought in, you know, asking them if if they they were always onto this kind of murder for hire because David had an alibi. That's very certain. So they thought, okay, well, he obviously wanted to get rid of her, so he must have paid somebody to do it. Instead of, you know, looking at the severely abusive partner who, yes, was in prison at the time, however, was incredibly abusive and if was going to hire somebody, he could have too. There's other, you know, baby daddies and stuff. So for whatever reason, they're hell-bent on David. And sometime around in July, they hear the name Joe Wilkes. And they kind of hone in on Joe as being the person that David hired to murder Yvonne. And they bring in Joe, who is a really sad character. And he confesses and said, yes, David paid me to do this. So it was about three months later that they actually found the alleged accomplice. He immediately confesses and David is arrested that day, July 14th or 15th. But it's a little more complicated than that because oh yeah <laughs> for 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 law enforcement to get to david's motive there's some twists and turns that have to happen which are you talking about well just the idea that law enforcement's motive is this is about money mm-hmm. and so he doesn't want to pay child support and he's this broke guy and he's so broke that he would rather hire somebody to get rid of her and then he will never have to pay child support. But then at that point he would be sole custody, which would cost him a lot of money. And then the totally. fact, and the fact that we now know that he had money, David had money. Yeah. And I've seen the account, the statements from the account, David had $130,000 in an investment account he was working, he, uh, he was going to swap meet. So on top of that, that was money that he just got when his father died. His dad was a, a veteran, died by suicide. So David got a lot of money from his life insurance, you know, military life insurance. So he had all that and he didn't need to touch it because he was working and making money working and he was doing really well. He had cars, he was going to swap meets, selling parts for $300 a pop. I mean, Child support was only $350 a month, which I guess in 1999 was a lot more than now, but he could make that money selling a car part. It's definitely an interesting motive that they came up with, especially when nobody said there was any issue with the payments or custody or anything like that. Yeah. And if I'm law enforcement, I'm coming up with the motive of, well, we've been together on and off again, and she's always on it on again, off again with Eric, to me, that makes, makes more sense of a motive that, well, I want to get rid of her because, you know, she keeps leaving me for this, this scumbag and I'm the the good guy that's always trying to help her out. And she just can't see that. That, that makes more sense to me of a motive. 
I mean, there is definitely, as we get, you know, further in, there's many more motives and you realize that almost everyone around her had a motive to kill her pretty much except for David. Because again, what we know is that he loved her. They were trying to get back together and he was planning on buying her a ring. So it's definitely interesting. I think too, you know, if I were someone sitting on the jury or looking at this case, even all these years later, I look at the, as the, the child support is kind of a, a blanketed statement that encompasses a lot of different possible motives for David Thorne, where it could be not only does he not want to pay the child support, but if he is going to be paying for uh, his son, Brandon, he would prefer to have custody, knowing, yeah. have custody of his son. He may also blame Look, Brandon was not being raised in the most wonderful of of worlds, and he may have blamed her for some of that. And I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff going on here as well. And there seems to be some some back and forth between David's current girlfriend and when he had to see Yvonne because of Brandon. Um, it, there, there's really just a lot that could have been bubbling up to the surface at the time that that could fall under that sort of child support blanket of of motive here. But as you pointed out, there are other people that would have motives of their own. And in fact, we see that there are a lot of other people. Now, before we get into them, we should say that during the course of the arrest and then the conviction, first, Police are led to this Joe Wilkes by individual that contacts the police department saying that she spoke with Mr. Wilkes on the night of the murder. So exactly. So so the timeline, the night of the murder, allegedly has, according to Joe's confession, is he was at the Carnation Mall, which is about four miles from Yvonne's house down State Street, um, if you're familiar with Alliance. And it's just a straight shot down this main main road, not really a highway, but, you know, three lanes each side, big road. He is at the mall around closing time, and he bumps into these two people, Rose Moore and Chris Campbell. And he sees them. Then he leaves, walks to her house, and kills her. According to them, he tells them that he flashes a knife and tells them, I'm here to do a job. And according to Rose, that job is to kill a girl. Some guy hired him to kill her. And according to Chris, some guy's girlfriend hired me to kill her. You know, their stories are so interesting because in their original statements to the police, Rose specifically says the knife was not a pocket knife. He flashed me, you know, an eight inch knife in a sheath. By trial, it is now a pocket knife, the exact weapon she said that it was not. But this is how Joe's name comes up. Three months later, a woman calls the police saying, a woman in the building's daughter knows something about this. And that's kind of how it all started spiraling at the beginning of July. So they get in contact with Joe Wilkes. And as we know, it's a it's a pretty quick, it seems pretty quick from the time they pick up Joe Wilkes to getting the confession. We're not talking about days later or weeks later that they get the confession. It's relatively pretty quick once he becomes on their radar. Now, who is Joe Wilkes? What is his tie into our victim? What is his tie into our other suspect? 
So Joe Wilkes at the time, he was a teenager. He was 18. I believe he was 18 or 19. Joe was a drifter. He was kind of known around town as this kid that, you know, would just sleep on people's couches. He had a really, really sad, traumatic life growing up. He was abused by his parents. Him and his siblings got put in a foster home where he was also abused. We're talking mental, physical, sexual abuse. So he had a really tough life growing up. He is actually a pretty smart kid. He does not have a low IQ, but he definitely, you know, had so much trauma that learning was not easy for him. He grew up with a shake, like a palsy. So when people talk to him, they always think he's nervous, but it's just this physical disability that he has from all the abuse. So, you know, people like David were just really nice to him. I mean, he looked up to David. David was much older than him. Again, Joe was around 18. David was 26 at the time of the arrest. So there was an age gap. David kind of saw this kid and, you know, if he saw him walking on the street, he'd give him a ride home or, you know, he helped him buy his first car. And a lot of the the friend group that I've talked to, they all say that about Joe. Yeah, he was a really sweet kid. He was just kind of always around and he didn't have a home. He was homeless. So people like David took care of him. He was, you know, at the time of the murder, he was staying at a girl, girlfriend's house or at the time of the arrest, at the time of the murder, he was also staying at a girlfriend's house. So that's kind of who Joe Wilkes is. He he was a scared kid. He was an emotionally disturbed kid. And you put him in an interrogation room with three detectives. Who knows what could happen? Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. 
when Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Well, and he's, it's a very emotional confession from what we hear anyway, because you play some of the confession tape on your show, Murder and Alliance. And I've got to tell you, Maggie, it's, it sounds awfully convincing to me uh, when we hear that confession from Joe Wilkes. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things where um, 1999, they were not <laughs> required to videotape the whole thing. So we don't have that. So we just have what, what is on tape and these are short tapes. I mean, this is a half hour, each of them, there's two tapes. 
they talk to him the first day, half hour. They go back the next day and pick up saying, hey, there's some things we, we left out. And they talk to him again for a half hour. I mean, the entire taped confession is an hour long. And if you've ever seen an interrogation or, you know, anything like that, it's, it's pretty common knowledge that the, when the tape turned on is not when they first started talking. So the question has always been what happened before the tape was turned on. Well, yeah. And law enforcement calls it a tape confession, but it seems like Joe has a different story about that. He, he says it's not even questioning from the beginning. It's, it's simply uh, an interrogation. Yeah. And he, he, yeah. he made some other claims as well. Yeah. Joe says that, you know, they had him handcuffed to a wall and they spit on him and, and they were being aggressive to him. And, you know, that is Joe's word. Um, but, you know, in, in one of the episodes, I go into all these officers' backgrounds. And um, if that did happen, it would not surprise me. I have come across, you know, some false confessions coerced by them. I mean, they're their personnel files. One of the de- lead detectives, Samson, his personnel files pretty, pretty damning. With um, he's hit with lying, forging documents. So, you know, he was one of the officers who who took Joe's quote confession. You know, something we we always forget, and I even forget, is that they went to him, according to Joe, saying um, David is in the next room. And he's, he's, you know, putting this on you. If you tell us what happened, you will get a deal. So they did dangle a deal in front of him. And as we know, Joe got 30 to life for taking the deal and saying, you know, quote, allegedly what happened. And as we know, David was not in the next room. David never talked to police. David had not talked to the police since that one time he went in with them with a lawyer and said, I'm not talking to you. And that was it. So they did lie to him saying David's in the next room giving you up. That's something to keep in mind. You know, that's part of the what happened before the tape was turned on. That's really interesting to me, too, because you have a scenario where, according to our witnesses, Chris Campbell and, forgive me, I, Moore, Rose, I can't yeah. think of her, Rose Moore, according to the two witnesses that lead detectives to Joe Wilkes, he he's saying some guy hired me to kill a woman. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say that David Thorne hired me to kill his ex-girlfriend. Some guy hired me to kill a woman. So that leads them to Joe Wilkes, but it doesn't necessarily lead them to David Thorne. Yet they're very quick to be saying David Thorne's sitting in the next room and he's turning on you, kid. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be your ass that we put in the electric chair and fry. Exactly. And it could have been, it could have been this Eric guy. It could have been, several other individuals that would have hired someone like a Joe Wilkes to commit this murder. Now the general statements inside of that taped portion of the confession or interview or interrogation, or however we want to label it is basically that Joe Wilkes is saying, I'm, I'm remorseful for what I did. I kind of knew the victim. I had met her on several occasions. I think that he, it's general knowledge that he had even been to her residence at least one time before Mm -hmm. the murder. Mm -hmm. And he, he says, you know, I was remorseful for this the night that I did it. And, and you can hear, I mean, he's, he's sobbing throughout a lot of the, the confession. And he's basically says, look, I know this guy, I've been friends with David Thorne for, for years. And he's complained about, 
Yvonne and he's complained about, you know, not wanting to pay child support that he wanted custody of his son. And I had nothing to lose. I had hit rock bottom. I had no friends. I had lost all my family. You know, the only friend I had was David Thorne and I had no money, no prospects. Um, he, Joe Wilkes, his life, his childhood is incredibly tragic and sad. It's just, I mean, it's heartbreaking to hear what he says took place during the course of his childhood. But then even after he gets away from that, it seems to me like his life is always this roller coaster ride mm-hmm. of he needs help. He gets some help and whether he follows through or not is, is up for the debate. But in this case, he says, I had lost pretty much everything. I had hit rock bottom. My friend who I thought was my friend, David Thorne took advantage of that, took advantage of me and he offered to pay me and help me out. And he convinced me to go and kill this woman and not only kill her, but kill her at a time when he, when David Thorne could, it couldn't lead back to him. Mm-hmm. It would be impossible because he would have that ironclad alibi. And let's go through the, the timeline of events as it, as it were, according to Joe and his confession. And let's let's keep in mind as we go through this, everybody out there in listener land, that we're talking about a confession that was it's also it's it's a confession from Joe Wilkes, but it's also a story that is backed by by the state or at least by the prosecution in this case. And you have to wonder a lot of things fit nice, neat and perfectly. I got to say that right up front here, Maggie, mm-hmm. there, there's, there are a lot of things like when we go into these cases and you're talking about an unsolved murder and you're looking at different suspects, we're always looking for a smoking gun, mm-hmm. right here. It's kind of the reverse of that. When you're looking at a possible wrongful conviction, you're looking for the smoking gun of why this guy is innocent. Mm-hmm. And it's really tough to find that here because you have a very unique situation where Joe Wilkes could be guilty of this murder. And David Thorne had nothing to do with it. Now, on the flip side of that coin is that if Joe Wilkes did not kill Yvonne Lane, then David Thorne didn't have anything to do with right. it. I mean, it just it wouldn't work out that way. So the timeline, as it were, according to Joe Wilkes and the prosecution, is what? When when does this because we start seeing things, actions being made according to Joe the day of the murder that he says involved David Thorne. So the day before, so we're talking the 31st, which is the day of the murder. Yes. He, they allegedly go to the mall in the after, in the afternoon, rent the room and they get, I forget if it's the glove. I think it's the gloves. They get the gloves that afternoon. And then David brings Joe back to the Enox where he was staying. He was staying with a friend. And then David goes about his day he goes to his his martial arts class he brings his lion cub you know that's how they knew for sure he was there that night he had a lion cub with him which isn't unusual for david i mean he had lion cubs and he brought them around with him um so the police you know did try to say he made this obvious alibi blah 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 i mean i i don't know that's up for debate i guess but so that was the alibi joe allegedly gets a ride to the mall that evening Brent Enoch, the father of of Joe's friend, said, yes, I brought him to the mall. He wanted to stay there. He said he was staying there. 
And then they say that Joe walked to her house sometime after seven. We know he was seen at the mall, allegedly by Rose and Chris around eight. So he wouldn't have gotten to Yvonne's house until at least nine, nine thirty. And then, you know, she's found at twelve thirty the next day. That that's really what we know. Joe says the next morning, David picks him up. This is where things get a little dicey. He says David picks him up the next morning sometime around 8.39. Looks like he made a phone call from a payphone to David. Um, and I'll get to the phone calls in a minute. Around 8.30, David was at work and he had to take a lunch break. And he, according to David, went to McDonald's, came back within the half hour. It was only a half hour break. Well, his boss spoke to police and said, no, it was like an hour, an hour and a half. Um, actually, which would give David time to go to the mall, pick up Joe, drop off Joe, and get back to work. So that's, you know, the story from the prosecution is that David dropped it. They got the room the night before. The day before, David picked him up in the morning, got back to work. No, no questions asked. It was a normal day. Everyone seemed normal. So that's that. I mean, I could get into the phone calls and stuff. How do you want to go from there? Just to kind of back up some of that statement as far as the prosecution's concerned. First, we have David Thorne leaving work on the day of the murder on the 31st, what, about 12, 1230 yeah. that day? Mm-hmm. And then we have Joe Wilkes checking into this hotel that's attached to or near the mall. And he's checking in at like 147, I think, 148 that day. So that, I mean, that kind of lines up with what Joe's statement is that David picked me up and we kind of talked about how this was going to go down. He gave me some money for, give me a hundred dollar bill to check into the hotel room because that's the other thing you have to lay out for Mm -hmm. the, the court proceedings is how did this broke guy get money to stay in a hotel and buy some items to commit the crime. And so he says, David gave me the money to check into this hotel room. That kind of fits the timeline is working in the favor of Joe and against David here, where it's lining up that David could have possibly have left work that day, picked up Joe Wilkes, taken him to the hotel. They get the gloves, takes him back to the, the Enox. Is that their mm-hmm. last name? The, the family that he was staying with a, fa- a friend. Apparently he, he needed to go back for a couple of reasons. It sounded like he had scheduled something with Brent Enox that for that afternoon or evening. And then Brent is the one that takes him back to the hotel. Now he can't, if if somehow he does murder this woman and the trail leads back to Joe Wilkes, David Thorne if, and Joe Wilkes can't have that happen, right? We can't have a night where all of a sudden this kid's staying in a hotel room and the trail leads back to him. No. So he tells Brent that I'm going to, I'm just drop me off at the mall because David Thorne's going to pick me up there and we're going to go back to his place. I'm actually going to be staying at his place that night. And then the troubling thing, as you said, we, we have, according to Joe Wilkes, he goes and walks to the victim's home. She knows him. So she lets him in. They have a very brief conversation. And then he says he takes the knife that he purchased that night and he uses it to slash her throat. Mm -hmm. And this was, I mean, this is just horrific the the wound itself i think you described it as what eight inches for it's eight inches deep and four inches wide i mean she was decapitated there was the smallest bit holding her 
head on. And according to the medical expert that they present at court, that Yvonne would have been alive and able to react for a very brief period of time. We're talking seconds probably before she would have collapsed. According to Joe's confession, that does take place, that she jumps up off of the couch, goes toward the sliding glass door. I believe it's a sliding glass door. Says something, ask him like, why? You know, why did you do this to me? He says that he told her that David Thorne asked him to or paid him to do that. He trips over something and he, according to Joe, he left there very quickly. This is one of those things where I could go on either side of the fence very easily. You could sway me either way. The difficult thing here is one would expect there to be a lot of blood on the suspect, on the murderer. And there was a lot of blood at the crime scene itself. We do have the prosecution and they're, what they're saying is that, that he managed to not get hardly any blood on him at all because the difficult thing now for our murderer, if it was Joe Wilkes, he has to walk, what, about four miles back to where he came from and not have anybody see. <laughs> Which no one did you see know, you him. Yeah, there's no right, you don't. It's not every day that you're driving and you see a, a blood-covered man on the side of the road walking uh, in the opposite direction. One, A couple things in the favor of that story is we're now talking it's probably 10 o'clock at night it's at this point. Dark, if we yeah. are to, yeah, if we are to believe his story, it's definitely dark by this time. So it doesn't line up completely with that seven o'clock uh, time of death, which that's probably more of a window rather than right. An they gave time a window. They getting. they the window was up until she was found. I mean, they really had no oh, idea. Yeah, it's like a twelve hour window. Yeah, they had no idea. But also, Joe is a, a very tall individual, right? He's like six four. I mean, so. You're going to notice him if he's walking on the side of the road. That doesn't mean he's not going behind houses, going behind buildings to get wherever. Well, that's he's the thing get. we've mapped it out. You can't really go behind houses and buildings. So, you know, yes, you're right. It could it's a it could be a ghost town, and I wasn't there in '99, but Sue was. Sue Thorne mm-hmm. is now David's wife, but has been his advocate since the beginning. Um, and she did this with her son, same time of night back then. I think she did it in like '05 or something. She put her son in what Joe was allegedly wearing and had him walk down the street. Um, And it's, you know, this is a street that is strip malls. I mean, like I said, it's a very busy highway. Um, There's lights everywhere. So he he definitely would have been seen. Um, There's no, you know, straight shot behind houses. He would have to be zigzagging and that would take three hours as opposed to the hour and a half. So if he did it, he probably walked on the street. And again, you know, I find it really incredible to believe he wouldn't have blood on him. Um, You know, the clothes that were found did not have any evidence on them. So it's it is interesting. (laughs) I mean, he could have walked without blood on him. The clothes don't have blood on them. But like if you see the crime scene, that makes no sense to me. But Joe led them to a knife and bloody jeans. A allegedly. Um, Joe, so so I guess a big part that we're missing here is Joe recanted almost immediately after at trial in his testimony. He says the police told me what to say. So pretty much immediately after he recants and said, you know, the police forced me to say this and they told me where they were going to find this knife. That's not my knife. I didn't have that knife. They told me 
we're going to find your knife here and then dig out this knife from a storm drain. So that's been Joe's new story. Joe's changed the story a few times over the years from my understanding. Well, he has indeed. The The thing is, ever since he recanted, the story has changed, but the fundamentals of it really haven't, that David had nothing to do with this. He has stuck to that for 22 years, that David had nothing to do with it. You know, one story, he went over there, killed her. One story, he went over there, she was already dead. You know, I think there's another one floating around, but they all do put Joe there. Um, he has not said otherwise, but he says he didn't do this. You know, he went and saw her already dead. Which is really interesting because nobody else puts Joe right. there. Right. In I mean, fact, he- we have talked to people who put Joe at the mall and say, no, he was doing X, Y, and Z at the mall. He wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't killing somebody at that time. But we always talk about this in here in the garage. When you have someone confess, especially when you need to find something, you know, murder weapon, murder victim, or anything else that was involved in the commission of the crime, you as an investigator, you're looking to have that individual lead you to that item. And you do that so that when they do recant, that you can say, well, tough cookies, you obviously led us to the murder victim or the murder weapon or something that was used in the commission of the crime. It's kind of hard to deny now and say that you weren't there when, when you gave us this item. Now here in this case, he leads him to some pants that he threw behind a a friend's home in like the woods or or tall grass area. And one, that's just bizarro to me. Like if, if you didn't commit this crime, who's just, throwing pants into the woods at, you know, at somebody's house, whether they knew them or not. Now I understand there's no, it doesn't sound like anything of evidentiary value were found on these pants. They were found months after, as you said, July, and she was killed March 31st, maybe April 1st at the latest, but they're found months later and they have nothing of evidentiary value on them. Again, what are those pants even doing there and why does he know that they're there is is bizarro if he didn't commit this crime. Yet, whether or not the police told him where they were going to find this murder weapon or the folding knife is, let's set that aside. Because what we are being told per the case file is that they actually located two different knives. Is that correct? So, yes, there was actually... At least four knives found. Oh, now we're um, at the four. Yeah, so so that's like a complicated part. But when they went into the storm drain, there were two other knives in there with the alleged murder weapon. And they actually found the day that they were searching the murder, not three months later, um, about a block away, they found a knife matching the knives in her kitchen set on the street. So to me, that seems like a more likely murder weapon, this knife that was from her home that actually looks very similar to a blood stain on the couch where the killer seems to have wiped off the blade. It is almost an exact fitting for this kitchen knife. Yeah. So yeah, there was many knives found. <laughs> There's also the incident at the mall where um, this witness says, oh, I saw Joe buying actually a pocket knife, but that was a month later in May, and I have the receipt from when I was there. So this witness actually 
presented a receipt saying, this is the day I was at the mall and actually saw Joe there buying a pocket knife. So if Joe did buy a knife, allegedly it wasn't even until a month after the murder. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Maggie, there's a lot of moving parts and pieces. I'm trying my best to (laughs) to follow along here. But if we are to believe Joe's story, he's telling us that he purchased a pocket knife or folding knife and the blade was what, three and a half inches? 3.1, yeah. 3.1 inches on that blade. And you said again that the, the, the throat, the wound was how many inches deep? Four. It's four. Okay, so we're awfully close there. Seems maybe possible, but then think about the... All right, without getting too descriptive, well, I, there's no way of getting around it. If you're eating lunch, stop, turn it off. <laughs> uh, if if someone... Because according to Joe Wilkes' statement, as far as I understand it, it sounds to me like this wound was a one and done. Right. He's not mm-hmm. there's not mul- he's not cutting multiple times. Well, that you you're hitting it exactly. So that's every expert who's looked at this case since then has pretty much said, if not have said that that pocket knife would not have made this cut. And, and for let's get incredibly gross here and say if he or anybody were able to successfully make that cut using that weapon as it's been described by all parties involved we all agree on the dimensions and what type of weapon it is that's not in dispute here but if he were to do that then the hilt or the part that the knife folds into would have to be forgive me for saying so buried in the neck of our victim yeah and how i get that you didn't find it for months later but how do you not find blood on that weapon. I don't care who wiped it clean. Yeah. That's that's really difficult there. And then this bizarro thing of these, all these knives being found around the neighborhood who, who lives in this neighborhood is it's like Dwight Schrute. That's (laughs) concealing weapons all over the place. I mean, it's, it would be weird to find John Rambo. Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's just difficult. Now the next morning though, what gets difficult for David, as far as Joe Wilkes statement goes we do have phone records that say that a payphone is calling David Thorne yeah. that morning. And we have the boss, his boss saying David Thorne left. And we have Joe Wilkes saying David Thorne picked me up. So the, um, a lot of interesting things happened at trial. So the, the trial was, was uh, in terms of the defense, horrible and or non-existent. Um, you know, David's lawyer died of alcohol poisoning very shortly after he froze to death outside of his home um, because he was so intoxicated and he passed out in the winter. So he was drunk the whole trial. So, you know, the the prosecution brings, you know, this expert who testifies about the knife and says she could still, you know, live for a few seconds to ask why after he cut her neck. And David didn't have any rebuttal, any rebuttal witnesses. There was three witnesses called. Two of them were character witnesses, and one was this guy who said, no, I saw him buy the knife in May. So David's team was never called an expert to say, no, a knife wouldn't do this, or never called an expert to wonder, to say, you know, why the hell is there no evidence on this? Never called an expert or somebody to um, talk about the phone records. Fortunately, the phone person was not lying on the stand and actually said during the prosecution's cross, 
these calls don't seem to have been answered, actually. Yes, he's calling him, but it's they were likely not answered. Um, so sure, Joe called David, but it would appear that he never answered the calls, um, which is really interesting. And then, of course, the other thing that happened at trial was the prosecution called the social worker for the child support, and the social worker actually recalled herself for the defense because she didn't like the way the prosecution portrayed her testimony. She was like, I want to be recalled and came on and said, actually, they had a really good relationship. I don't want to be, you know, have the prosecution twist my words on record. Um, so, you know, those were two things at trial that that were good, despite the horrible defense. Well, also, didn't prosecution keep some evidence out of the trial? Yeah. Do you want to go there? <laughs> Please. Yeah, so we had an incredible amount of Brady violations, one of which is a witness. Uh, there was two witnesses, but one of them is really key. A witness who says he saw a man leaving the home around 1030 in the morning of April 1st. Yvonne was likely dead around 1030 in the morning, um, considering she was found at 1230 and the time frame of death was sometime after 7 p.m. the night before. So this witness tells police that morning at the scene, oh my God, I was walking by here a few hours ago and actually saw a guy, you know, leaving this house. And he gives the description of this man and they bring him in to do a lineup. He doesn't pick anybody out. They have him for bring him back for another lineup. He doesn't pick anybody out. David, we know was in one of these lineups. He doesn't pick David out. You know, why would he again? David had an alibi. It would likely not be David seen leaving the house or anything like that. According to him, this man's name is George Hale. He's been interviewed many, many, many times. According to him, um, he did pick somebody out in the lineup. And this is really interesting because this lineup, one of the many Brady violations, it should have been given as discovery, and it never was. This lineup is gone. So we have no way of telling if George Hale is telling the truth. But he says he pointed to a man and said, that's the man... That looks like the man I saw leaving the house. This man that he picked out, he says they told him, no, that can't be the guy. That's a cop. They put like a cop's picture in as part of the lineup, just as like a blank photo. Um, But he says he picked out a guy who was one of the lead cops in the case as the guy who was leaving the house. So, you know, they kept George Hale from the defense, this witness that could have been key saying, look, I saw somebody leaving the house. It was not Joe or David. Um, and actually pointed to a completely different person who, whole other can of worms, we have found out that Yvonne was having relationships with people in the police department. So the fact that George didn't know this and picked out a photo of an officer, allegedly, is very interesting. Now, I want to stay on this here for a minute because I don't I don't want anybody to get confused and go, oh. He picked out a guy that happens to be a cop. Oh, that must be the guy that right. that murdered. He, the right. And his words were, it looked like the guy I saw. So, you know, wh- whatever that means, he didn't say this is the guy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when, you know, it, you can't just give a photo lineup of, of five different pictures of the guy that you think did it. Right. You have to throw several pictures right. of people, you know, that did not do it in there. And so often they will use a photo of an officer as a kind of stand in for someone. 
one thing that I would be curious, there's, there's a lot of things here that I think need sorted out with this portion of, of the case file. And one I would want to know is because immediately what the police say is, well, this witness is unreliable, you know, because he picked out the wrong guy. One, I want to know, was there a picture of Joe Wilkes in this lineup? Because we know that David, according to the prosecution's case and according to uh, everybody right. agrees David was not there. So even to have his photo in the lineup seems bizarro to me, but then take it a step further. Do they know for a fact that this guy is an unreliable witness because the officer that that's picture was present was somebody that just like David could not have been there that night? We don't know. We don't have an answer. And that's the frustrating part is, you know, all of this was disappeared. You know, I have two depositions from two of the main detectives, Mucklow and Sampson, and the attorney who's deposing them says, what happened to this lineup? Where should it have been? And they admit, yeah, it should have been in Discovery, and I don't know. I don't know why it's gone. I mean, there's so many highly suspicious things like that in this case where it's like, why are you not doing things by the book? Why are lineups disappearing? Why are witnesses being suppressed? You know, there's just so much that that muddies it. And if they did get it right, if they did get it right, and Joe and David did this the way they said it, I mean, they got really lucky because there's a lot of errors and there's a reason why people don't trust these convictions. Yvonne Lane, she's found around 12, 1230, April 1st. She's Her dead body is found by her mother, Tanya, who is there to pick up one of the children, I believe, to take them to school or take them somewhere mm-hmm. for the day. And that was pretty a pretty routine thing, it sounds like. Let's go back to the murder scene, because we have four children, as you say, that were there. No matter how you shake this thing, they were there during the murder, mm-hmm. before, during and after the murder. What is the, and you can ballpark the ages for me if, if you need to, but w- what is the oldest child's age and what is the youngest child's age? Yep. So the kids that were there, the youngest was Trenton. He was just born. He was a baby. I mean, I don't think he was even a year yet. So Trenton was in the crib. And the way to understand this house, it's, you know, I didn't really understand it until I saw it, but there's two, three floors and you kind of enter in what looks like the basement floor because the rest of the house, you go upstairs and that's where the kitchen is and the dining room and the living room and where she was murdered. And then one more floor up is her bedroom. So the baby was sleeping in the bedroom up on the third floor. And then there was Brandon and Preston. Preston was six. Brandon was two. They were locked in their bedroom. There was a lock on the outside. They were locked in their bedroom. And then there was Vinny. Vinny is four and he's the disabled child. He has fragile X. It's like a form of kind of severe, um, um, gosh, I don't even know how to explain it. Kind of of like Down syndrome a little bit, um, you know, kind of on that spectrum. Um, so he had, he's the the oldest. No, he was four. So he's so Preston six, Brandon's two. Yeah. Trenton's the baby. And Vinny is four and he was in his crib on the first floor, the basement room that you walk into. So he was actually, not locked in a room or a baby that couldn't move. So he was actually free to roam the house. And when he was found the next day, 
he allegedly said that he saw Jimmy, Jeremy, Jimmy or Jeremy push mommy down. So the thinking has always been that Vinny saw this person. He saw what happened. The way that this breaks down is other than the statement from, from that child, it doesn't sound like any of the other kids heard or saw anything that was of use to the investigation. No. I mean, depending on what time she was killed, we know that April 1st is supposed to be a normal day. They're going to go about the normal routine of their day. So much so that Yvonne's mom is coming to pick up one of the children. And it's not till noon, 1230 that her lifeless body's discovered. And again, we, none of the kids saw anything during the fact, during the course of the murder or even after well, afterwards, as far as we know. As far as we know, and that's that's what makes it even more sad, is that, you know, it's very likely Vinny saw this. And it's also really sad because Vinny can't communicate. We don't know what Vinny saw. He can't communicate it. And in any interview he has done since, which was really back then, only with police and I think, you know, like a child psychiatrist, there it's nothing. Nothing of value has come from it. Um, and, you know, he's not really able to be interviewed you know by me or anybody he you know i asked his brother preston the six-year-old he was six at the time i spoke to preston he's in the podcast and you know he says there's no there's no point in asking Vinny because he doesn't his brain doesn't really function like that he's not he's not able to communicate um so that's the tragedy too is that not only did this child probably see his mother murdered but the one child who did can't communicate what he saw Thank you so much for listening to the show. We want to hear from you. Go to our blog at truecrimegarage.com and please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at True Crime Garage. Colonel, join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.